Welcome to the Long COVID podcast with me, Jackie Baxter. I am really excited to bring you today's episode. Please do check out the links in the show notes where you can find the podcast website, social media and support group, as well as a link to buy me a coffee if you are able. You should not rely on any medical information contained in this podcast and related materials in making medical health related or other decisions. Please do consult a doctor or other health professional. I love to hear from you. If you've got any suggestions or feedback or just want to say hey, then please do get in touch. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So here we go. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Long COVID podcast. I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Dr. Robert Groisman, who has been using the stellate ganglion block to help people with long COVID. So we're going to be talking a load about that today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's so exciting to be talking to you. To start with, would you mind just introducing yourself just a little and maybe just saying a little bit more about what it is that you do? Sure. So um, my name is Robert Groisman. I am a physician, that means a medical doctor, and I am uh, dual boarded. Uh, what that means is I have um, diplomat status in two different boards. One is American Board of Anesthesiology and the other one is American Board of Pain Medicine. I originally trained as an anesthesiologist, but uh, right now I'm mostly spending time working on pain management. It's interventional, which means um, different kinds of injections. So I'm an expert at um, treating pain and other conditions by injecting specific areas of the body. Wow. Is that what led you into sort of looking at long COVID um, and the sort of pain side of it? So uh, what led me to dealing with long COVID actually is um, my treatment of uh, PTSD sufferers. So um, way before long COVID was even a thing, um, I was treating patients for PTSD, uh, everything from rape victims to veterans to people who were wrongfully convicted in jail, people who have been kidnapped to other countries. I mean, you you wouldn't believe the stories that I've heard. And um, based on the work of Dr. Eugene Lipoff, he kind of pioneered this whole thing with a stellar ganglion block for PTSD. So I started doing this roughly five years ago. And we've had immense success with it, uh, roughly 80%. So I kind of fell into this long COVID thing, even before we knew what long COVID was. So back in, in January of the year, this whole thing started. So uh, we we just happened to have a patient that had PTSD and something about loss of smell. You know, we had no connection, obviously, from COVID and that. And, you know, we did the stellar ganglion block and his smell came back. So it kind of got the gears working. And, uh, you know, we didn't do anything for a little while. And then we started seeing more patients coming in with loss of smell and then abnormal smell. So as far as there was only loss of smell. And of course, uh, you know, you get this news that kind of came out, um, you know, COVID, how do you know you have COVID? You lose your smell. As soon as you lose your smell and taste, you have COVID, you know, and all the jokes came out and everything, you know, we, everybody thought that this was a temporary thing. And, it would just go away on its own. And so we started seeing more and more patients with loss of smell. 
And then a few months later, we started seeing patients with abnormal smell and then all the other, the parosmias um, and all the other symptoms started coming out. So I think we're probably the earliest treaters of um, long COVID, even before long COVID became a thing, or we knew what it was, long hauler, long COVID, post-acute COVID syndrome, PACS. Um, so all this stuff um, was unknown. So that's that's kind of how I got into the long COVID game, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's amazingly interesting, isn't it? You know, I, I think... I, I was probably one of the early long COVID kind of cohort. Um, but, you know, there were people who were infected prior to March 2020, which we know now at the time we maybe didn't. But I mean, I think for me, I didn't really hear the words long COVID until maybe May, June of 2020. But, you know, it had obviously been around before that. And, you know, I suppose in some ways it had been around for decades beforehand with, you know, MECFS. You know, and I, th- I think the jury is still out on whether it's exactly the same thing. But yeah, maybe we should backtrack just a little bit. Um, what is the stellate ganglion? So a stellate ganglion is basically a collection of, of nerve cells. Okay, so a ganglion is kind of like a mini brain uh, in your nervous system. It's an autonomic nervous system. So it's, that's different from the sensory system, you know, things that basically let you feel things like pressure or touch or even pain. Uh, and it's different from the motor system, motor nervous system, where these nerves control your arms and, and legs and basically everything else in your body that is voluntarily controlled by you. So uh, this part of the nervous system controls the automatic stuff, autonomic, automatic. So things that you don't have to think about, um, things like pupil size, things like producing tears and saliva, that's automatic, right? Breathing, I mean, yes, you can voluntarily control it, but you don't have to really think about it. Your heart rate, making your heartbeat, that's all controlled by the autonomic nervous system. Digestion is a big one. Um, so getting the food from your throat down in your esophagus into your stomach, producing the acid, getting it into your intestines, all that's kind of controlled. You don't have to do anything, think about it. That's all autonomic nervous system. So the roles are split between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Most of the stuff that is the maintenance stuff, the the immune system control, the inflammation control, the the maintenance parts of repair, all that's handled by the parasympathetic nervous system. Okay. So that system is in control of all that. And it's really meant to be in the driver's seat um, 99% of the time. Um, sympathetic nervous system comes along for the ride, it's shotgun. And if anything happens that gets you excited, like, um, you know, being chased by an angry dog or seeing um, a beehive or almost get hit by a car, it pushes the parasympathetic out of the way and gets into the driver's seat. So um, it has a purpose, fight or flight. And this system is meant for temporary short-term use. So uh, this is where the stellar ganglion comes in. This little part of the brain consists of two separate plexuses. Uh, One is the inferior cervical plexus and one is the superior thoracic plexus. Now these little brains are all the way from the brainstem down to the bottom of your spine. Uh, And it's kind of a way for for your brain to consolidate the automatic decisions in different parts of your body 
without having to go through your brain to make these decisions. And as I said, this is all automatic. So uh, the stellar ganglion is very, very important. It's one of the most important ganglia. And that's because it controls a lot of the communication between the brain and the heart and the lungs and the chest. So basically all the signals um, from the sympathetic that originate in your brain um, go through the stellar ganglion through a track and it decides where, where it needs to go. If it needs to go back to the brain, if it needs to go to the heart, if it needs to go to your arm. So things like sweating is controlled by a sympathetic nervous system. The composition of sweat is controlled by the sympathetic nervous system. I don't know if you knew that. Even even your tears actually can have different composition depending on what's happening. But what, what's important is, is it's kind of a, a most important relay between the memory part of your brain, which is the amygdala, it sits in your temporal region, and uh, the rest of your body. So one way the stellar then communicates and um basically um, consolidates the information is you may have fear from running from a dog, but you're going to react way faster next time because it's stored in your amygdala and it's automatically going to send that signal down to the sympathetic to race your heart, to dilate your pupils, to make you breathe shallow and and, and fast and uh, to make you sweat because you're going to cool your body off because it knows you're, you're, you're going to be using your muscles to either run or fight. So that's what it's normally supposed to do, this, this little uh, structure called the stellar ganglion. Um, the problem is, is that in long COVID, it's not functioning properly. And that's kind of where we see all the problems with the symptoms. We'll be right back. I'm interrupting myself for a second to tell you about long COVID breathing. The fabulous Vicky Jones and I have teamed up to bring you Long COVID Breathing. We are both passionate about sharing our expertise and experience of the breath and how incredibly helpful that can be with Long COVID. We've worked together to develop a course that is specifically tailored to those with Long COVID. It's a six-week course with 12 sessions, all delivered online. The community feel and learning that we're all sharing is such a joy. To find out more information and to sign up for our courses, workshops and other shorter sessions, please check out the link below longcovidbreathing.com or email longcovidbreathing at gmail.com to start your breathing journey with us. Right. So it's a bit like a switchboard almost. Yes, exactly. It's exactly like a switchboard. That's cool. And that totally explains, I mean, you um, you listed off a whole list of things that the autonomic nervous system kind of controls, your breathing, your heart rate, your sweating, your pupil size, your gut, um, there were other things. Um, and these are all things that are associated with the symptoms of long COVID. Yes. And, you know, they're all subtly different for everybody, but they're pretty common ones that you just mentioned, aren't they? Yes. Uh, and I'll I'll explain to you how this all falls into... Um, I guess my theory of dysautonomia. So there's a lot of different, I guess, hypothesis of why long COVID happens. I mean, people can't even decide what long COVID is. I mean, if you look at the WHO definition, you look at the uh, the CDC definition, they're very different. Mostly they refer to how long after you've had COVID, these symptoms develop. Uh, they can't agree on symptoms. They can't agree on a lot of the specifics. But this autonomia just basically means that the autonomic nervous system is now working properly. 
It's a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. Now, that doesn't tell you if it's working too high or too low. It just means it's not working right. But I can essentially explain most of the symptoms, if not all, um, using the dysautonomia model. Um, one of the comments is, is that uh, the parasympathetic nervous system basically modulates or controls your inflammation, which comes from where? Your immune system. And people don't think inflammation is immune system, but it is. Um, parasympathetic basically keeps it under control. So if the parasympathetic nervous system or the vagus nerve is not functioning properly, your autoimmune system is going to be a little out of control, which you start developing these autoimmune-like conditions. You start seeing things like celiac disease. You start seeing thyroiditis, you know, thyroid problems. You start seeing rheumatoid arthritis-like symptoms, lupus, Sjogren's, Raynaud's. All these things start coming up all of a sudden in long COVID when the person's never had these symptoms. So, I mean, yeah, you could say that, uh, you know, there's some other, me other mechanism causing these autoimmune conditions, but we can also explain it because the parasympathetic is not, you know, it's not functioning properly. Yeah. So they are all completely interconnected, aren't they? They are. All these kind of different things um, that could be happening or symptoms or um, immune system and your autonomic system and your all your other systems, they're all connected, aren't they? Well, yes, because when your immune system is not functioning properly, if it's overactive, um, you will have some chronic inflammation, even if it's low level. That could explain some of the changes that happen in the brain. And um, that could explain some of the brain fog and the chronic fatigue. Um, also, another way to look at it is um, if you're in chronic sympathetic tone, you're in constant fight or flight, Blood flow is not going to be the same in your brain and in your head as it is normally under parasympathetic control. That can also explain some of the changes that happen with brain fog and fatigue. Now, um, you know, the whole smell and taste thing, you notice that uh, that's very unique to long COVID. There's other causes of dysautonomia. Diabetes is a very common cause of having autonomic neuropathy or dysautonomia, same thing, just another way of, of saying it. But it doesn't cause problems with taste or smell. Lyme disease does this, but doesn't cause problems with taste or smell. Lupus can cause it. But again, no issues with taste or smell. So there's something unique that COVID does in addition to the dysautonomia that causes this. Do you know what that is? So I think it's the initial insult to those um, to the support cells. So there is initial damage. Okay, I mean that's been shown. Uh, that's been shown in um, in cadavers, but I don't think this damage is permanent. I think it's repaired within uh, a couple of months because this tissue is renewed from the stem cells that's in the area, and it's repaired, but it's not rebooted. So. We need to do something to kind of kickstart the process. And that's where the stellar ganglion comes in, the block. Cool. So maybe that would be a good time to shift this over to talk about the stellate ganglion block. <laughs> so yeah, what is it? So this area of the neck is um, kind of prime real estate. There's a lot of important structures there. So there's the nerves that come out from your spine in the cervical area that go to your arm. 
This is called the brachial plexus. And these are cervical nerve roots that come out and um, basically power your arm and shoulder and your hand. And uh, there's also the vertebral artery, which is a very large artery that travels inside the, the spine structure um, to the brain. So it's an important blood supply to the brain. And you obviously also have the carotid artery and uh, the jugular vein, the internal jugular vein. So these are just the vascular structures and the nerve structures. You also have your thyroid gland and your esophagus that are sitting all within about two and a half inch uh, cube uh, in this area where we're going. So it's an advanced block. So you need to be able to recognize every single structure and avoid anything that's bad and get to where you need to get to. So um, back to kind of where the stellar ganglion is, uh, when we do the block, we're not technically injecting around the stellar ganglion because it would be dangerous to do so. And the reason is, is because it's closer to the thoracic and there's also lung in there, the top part of your lung called the copula. And there's a chance if you go too low in the neck or too inferior, um, you can get into the lungs. So we usually go uh, several levels up. Usually usually this is done either at C6 or C7 uh, cervical levels. As you know, we have seven uh, seven uh, cervical vertebrae. So this, this ganglia sits um, on the front side part of the neck. And you have to find it under, under ultrasound. And kind of what we're looking for really is the, the sympathetic tract. Uh, and it has different positions. It's not always in the same place in every single person. This part of the anatomy is actually somewhat var variable, not just where the stellar ganglion sits or the tract sits, but also where the carotid and the jugular vein sits and um, the shape and position of the, of the vertebral uh, area that we're targeting. Uh, so really what, what we're looking for is um, there's a part of the, uh, of the vertebral body, which is the the entire part of the vertebrae, the bony part of the spine. It's called the um, anterior tubercle. Now behind this, or, or further back, I guess, um, is where these nerve roots come out. That we don't want. That's, that's the no-no zone. Uh, we want to be in front of that, okay? And um, there's a muscle called the longus coli muscle. And this tract can either be on top of the muscle or sometimes underneath the prevertebral fascia, which overlies the muscle. I know I'm getting a little technical, sorry. So it's important to be able to recognize where this track is because if you don't put it in the right area, you're not gonna get a good block. So that's number one. Number two, um, if you don't know where you're going, you can get into trouble. I just listed you all the structures that are there. Getting into any of these structures could be you know, bad or catastrophic. So it's, it's really important to know where you're going. And like I said, it is variable, uh, which means uh, each person has a, a very unique anatomy when we look in there. So that that's, um, I mean, the, the, the nitty gritty part of it is, is that we find the track using ultrasound because ultrasound lets you see all these structures. It lets you see veins, arteries, nerves, muscle, soft tissue, thyroid, esophagus, all these things are visible on ultrasound, not so much under x-ray or fluoroscopy. I know some doctors do this uh, with fluoroscopy, which I don't recommend because you can't see any of the soft structures. You see the spine, that's it. And it's just landmark based. Whereas I, I adjust in every single person under ultrasound where it goes. 
and uh, basically surrounding the the area with the local anesthetic. There's no steroid used or anything. So once you've done that, usually within 30 seconds to a minute, um, you'll start seeing what's called Horner syndrome. Uh, I, I tell people ahead of time so they don't get scared or worried, but um, it's what's supposed to happen. So everything is going to be on the side you're doing the block, okay? So the eye is going to be droopy. The upper lid is going to be droopy. And that's because the sympathetic nervous system innervates a muscle in the upper lid. Um, so once you block that, it kind of drops down a little bit. Uh, the eye becomes red. The pupil becomes small. Why? Because the sympathetic makes it large. That's what it's supposed to do to let more light in. You'll notice that your nostril on the side that you're blocking, you know, usually we start on the right, will be stuffy. And again, sympathetic will constrict the blood vessels, making it easier to take a breath. Another one that uh, some people get is flushing. So either half the face um, will turn red or be flushed or warm. Sometimes it goes into the shoulder and arm as well. So those are all considered uh, part of the Horner syndrome. Um, it lasts as long as the, the local anesthetic lasts, but the effect of the block lasts longer. That's the key. Uh, one other thing that happens usually is, is it blocks um, what's called the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Uh, and this is a nerve that goes to the vocal cords. So we only do one side at a time because of this. So you develop like a little frog in your throat or hoarseness. Um, and you do not want to block both sides at the same time for this reason, because that would create a medical emergency. So uh, if you don't develop Horner syndrome, you didn't do a sympathetic block. I mean, it's as simple as that. If nothing is happening up here, um, you didn't do a sympathetic block. I don't know what you did. You know, you put local in there, um, but, you know, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, so these symptoms, the Horner syndrome, you said, that's a sign that it's worked. So that's a good thing. Yes, I like to see at least three different signs to know that, that it worked. If you only see one, then you're not quite sure. Uh, so I use three out of the five to say that it worked well. So I didn't mention this, but that's a traditional stellar ganglion block. You go at C6 or C7, mostly C6. And it's tolerated well awake. You numb up a part of the skin and you guide a needle to where it needs to go and you put the local anesthetic in and then you come out. Now, we do something a little different. Uh, we also go to C4. Okay, and that's the secondary part. Now, that's technically not part of the stellar ganglion. It's part of this, the same track that's on, you know, another car of the train where the stellar ganglion comes through. But this is part of the superior uh, cervical plexus. And it's been shown in, in the study that, um, at least with PTSD, that the results are superior by including two levels as opposed to just doing one. So, um, so that's kind of where we've seen our successes. Wow. Um, it sounds like really precision kind of thing, doesn't it? And yes. I mean, you know, I, I've noticed just personally how very different everyone's symptoms, bodies, everything, everyone's so different. But I'd never really thought about how that translated into somebody like yourself who's treating people. So you're looking at everybody and you're thinking not only are your symptoms and everything else different, the way your neck looks is different too. Yes, yes. Um, and, and let me tell you, um, I mean, there's so many variations, it's not even funny. With extra arteries sometimes in the way, um, 
sometimes extra veins. So you really kind of sometimes need to do like a, almost like a slalom course, um, you know, weaving and bobbing around uh, various structures so you don't cause any damage. Uh, you kind of envision where you need to be and then you have to plot a course and it's not always a straight line. I was just imagining the um, the bit in Star Wars where they're heading for the um, what's it majiggy in the middle of the Death Star. Right, right, right. The, the core. <laughs> yeah, um, the sort of maneuver to get in there. Um, so you say that this this is is called a block, and is it it's the sympathetic nervous system that you're trying to block? Is that the idea? Yeah. So the the, the only thing it does is it basically prevents signals from both the brain from from reaching the body and vice versa from the body reaching the brain on the sympathetic nervous system side, but it's only one side at a time. So your body still has the other side to work. Um, If you happen to be dominant on the side we're blocking, which about roughly 80% of people are right dominant, nothing to do with hands, by the way. And you happen to block um, the right side and they happen to be dominant. Uh, the majority of people will see a result. Now, the result is immediate. Uh, I mean, like within 30 seconds of doing the block, everything changes. Everything from brain fog to uh, to the taste and smell. The first thing they tell me is the alcohol. Alcohol smells normal because we're cleaning them off with alcohol. And these are people who have not smelled anything for the last two years or longer, or people have an abnormal smell. So yeah, I mean, I was I was really surprised myself how quickly the result is. So you know this is not because of rewiring, okay? I mean, a rewired, you know, smell system or olfactory system is not going to fix itself in 30 seconds or a minute, right? It's not going to regenerate itself in 30 seconds to a minute. And even inflammation is not going to go away within 30 seconds to a minute. I mean, even if you put steroid in there... You know, it would take days before you start seeing an effect, not seconds. So something different is happening, which also kind of gives us clues as to the causes. So the the majority of stuff I treat is going to be neurological or psychological. So things like smell and taste. So either no taste or smell, you know, parosmia, um, dysgeusia, you know, abnormal taste and smell, the anxiety insomnia that happens, uh, they can't sleep, um, the fatigue that, that comes along with, uh, with COVID. Some people get depressed or PTSD that treats that as well. Um, I've had some success with tinnitus, uh, long COVID caused tinnitus. In fact, I treated a gentleman a week and a half ago uh, that came in specifically for the tinnitus. And I told him, look, I don't know what the outcome is going to be because we just don't have many patients with tinnitus. And it worked for him immediately. We're still kind of trying to figure out which symptoms it works really well for and which ones are kind of hit or miss. Um, I will tell you people who have brain fog or fatigue usually feel very tired after the block. Sometimes for just a day, sometimes for a few days. And I think that happens because the sympathetic is kind of keeping them wired for so long. And the body adjusts to that. And when you remove that, you're exhausted. Um, your body just feels exhausted. You just want to sleep and rest. Um, so people who don't respond to the right side. So they could be potentially left-siders. You know, some people are 
are left-siders and a few people fall into the known dominance. You need to do both sides to see any effect. We've seen people from, e from each of those categories. Uh, so we also do vagus nerve stimulation. I don't do it in the office. I basically teach people how to do it. And this is kind of the other side. We talked about the sympathetic, um, by blocking the sympathetic. But one possibility, and nobody really looked at this, is maybe it's not the sympathetic. Maybe it's because the vagus is low. Maybe the parasympathetic is low. And by stopping the sympathetic, you make the other side come up. So they're, they're kind of linked almost on a seesaw. So when one goes up, the other goes down. Like it's, it's also possible and quite possible that um, it has nothing to do with the sympathetic. It's we're indirectly basically improving the parasympathetic uh, and that's what does the work. And that also explains the whole vagus nerve stimulation done in the ear. It's a slower process for sure than the stellar ganglion block. It could take up to three months or longer, but it does improve taste and smell. It does improve brain fog, and it does improve most of the symptoms people have. It just takes longer. And just like the stellar ganglion block, it doesn't work for every single person. And I guess the thinking there is maybe it's more stuck. Um, they need additional work to get it unstuck. Once you get it unstuck, you have to keep it unstuck. <laughs> and that means reducing your stress, reducing your stress, normal stress. Um, have you heard stories of um, people fluctuating, their symptoms fluctuating either during the day or when they go away somewhere, everything comes back to normal. And then when they return, it's back to the bad, bad one. Yeah. And we were on holiday last week and it was amazing how much better I felt. Right. So it's not the altitude. It's not the air. You know, the air is not fresher where you went. You're just basically reducing your stress level. And when you do that, you're letting the parasympathetic have a little bit more of a say of what happens. But I think most people in long COVID are stuck in this high sympathetic fight or flight mode, low parasympathetic vagus mode. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how you, depends how you look at it. Um, parasympathetic and the vagus are responsible for the healing, for the maintenance. So all the tissue repair stuff happens under parasympathetic control. You know, if you're fighting for your life, your body doesn't care about fixing your cut or fixing your nerve or fixing anything. It's focused on keeping you alive. That, that's what it wants to do right there and there. But that's why I said sympathetic, you know, should be shotgun most of the time, not in the driver's seat. Uh, but what happens when it is? If it is in the driver's seat all the time, 24-7, well, your body doesn't maintain itself. It can't heal. It doesn't control your immune system. It's a little wild. It doesn't control inflammation. It's a little wild. Uh, digestion is abnormal. Um, I mean, everything kind of uh, you know, goes to pot. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm just jumping in for a second to see if you're enjoying this episode. If you're finding it useful, maybe you would consider sharing it somewhere, a friend, a group, or even on your Twitter feed. If everyone was able to share just once, we'd be able to get this information out to even more people who really, really need it. So please consider sharing somewhere if you possibly can. I hope you enjoy the episode, and thank you so much. I 
So it's about kind of evening them out and that could be blocking the sympathetic or it could be stimulating the parasympathetic or both. Or both. Well, I want to make it clear though, you don't, you never want a hundred percent sympathetic or a hundred percent parasympathetic because that also is not good. You want a balance, but you still want the parasympathetic in the driver's seat and the sympathetic sitting next, not the other way around. You can't survive with just one. You need both, but you need them in balance. You need the parasympathetic to be in control most of the time because that's what our bodies need. That's how we function. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. Um, so, I mean, you um, talked about seeing improvement in people that you've been working with. Um, would you say you'd seen improvement in most people? It, it really depends on which symptoms we're talking about. And I know they're all part of the same, you know, the same constellation. But as you've seen with long COVID, there's over 100 symptoms that have been documented with, with long COVID. Um, some very serious, some not so serious, um, but they're all they're all important and part of long COVID. So because I mainly target um, the neurologic and the psychologic, yes, I've seen improvement in the majority of people uh, that I've treated. I mean, have I had non-responders? Sure. Just like with any other treatment or medication um, or even surgery, there's going to be some people that just don't respond. Now, like I said, this may be just because they're so stuck that they need multiple before you start seeing an effect. But uh, the majority of um, people without taste or smell respond and timing doesn't seem to really have an impact. We've treated somebody who was 27 and a half months post COVID that recovered with abnormal taste or smell. What I'm going for and what I consider a success is somebody who can tolerate a food or, or drink that they couldn't before or smell. It may not be normal, you know, it may not be what they remember, but it's tolerable now. So that allows you to be around people and, and eat. And even if the um, orange or the chocolate doesn't taste quite like you remember it, it, it's something that you can tolerate and enjoy, whereas before you couldn't. And you know the, the, the culprits. We have peanut butter, chocolate. Um, we have coffee. We have garlic, onion, and for some people, chicken and meat. Those are the big ones. Yeah, and um, if you couldn't eat before and now you can, if you couldn't be in your office because every smell and perfume drove you crazy and now you can, I consider this a success. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's it's like with everything that we try, um, you know, some of it is stuff that we've been hacking ourselves at home and sometimes it's um, with people who actually know what they're doing, like yourself. And anything that is an improvement is good, you know, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent successful to not have been a success. I think for most people, yes, but you know, some people are unreasonable or have very high expectations and, um, you know, feel disappointed unless it's a hundred percent. Um, I try, I try to be realistic with expectations and let them know, but you know what, you're doing good work too. I mean, we're all, we're all doing this basically to help people. And, uh, you know, unfortunately th this kind of stuff, because people are desperate, brings out a lot of um, charlatans and scams and stuff. So, you know, I caution people to be careful. And I know part of this is the fault of doctors and the medical community because long COVID is still very much um, gaslighted. 
Uh, and that's because there's no test or a way to, to tell somebody, yeah, you got long COVID. It's not like a diabetes test. You could check their, their sugar or their hemoglobin A1C or, or some, some way like an MRI or, or CAT scan or blood test that will pinpoint and say, yes, you got this. And because of that, a lot of doctors don't take it seriously. You know, they, they tell their patients they're imagining it or it's in their head. They send to psychiatrists. I've seen that. So it's a, you know, it's a strange, strange world that we live in. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, I think it's brought out the best and the worst in a lot of people. Um, so yeah, you mentioned with the, with the block that, you know, that there's the two sides that you can do. And you mentioned that some people might need more than one. So is this something that might need to be done? I don't know if regularly is the right word, but you know, sort of more than once, or is it a one and done, or is it going to be different for different people? Yeah, it, that's a it's a really loaded question. And I guess so. I've done a lot of rescue blocks. Okay, so basically, uh, people have done it elsewhere and come to me, and it, it works. Um, so the the question is, am I doing something different, or is it because we're repeating it? So I've developed a three day protocol and a five day protocol, just basically daily stellar ganglion blocks. Basically, stellar ganglion blocks over three and five days daily to try to get non-responders to respond. And uh, some people do get better with repeat. Um, some people don't respond after one or two sets on each side. So yes, there is there is benefit uh, to repeating it. Sure. Um, and I guess that's just going to depend on the person. Yes. And how stuck they are, how resistant their autonomic nervous system is to change. And think about it this way. You know, your nervous system is, is set up a certain way and your body likes homeostasis or equilibrium, even if it's abnormal. So um, let's say you've had long COVID for two years and your body is used to it, even if it's abnormal. And then you take this rubber band and you stretch it back to the normal spot. But it's under tension. And your body really, really wants it to snap back. And for some people, it does. Even though it's, a, it's an abnormal state, it's what your body is used to. And it likes equilibrium. And uh, in those cases, we, we do something a little different. If it just keeps snapping back, we do something called a pulsed radio frequency, which um, basically is similar to a stellar ganglion block. The needle goes in the same areas. But in addition to putting the local anesthetic, you also zap it. There's an electrical pulse that's sent in, and it, it stuns the track. And it can stun the track anywhere from a week to three months. It's variable in different people. And uh, during that time, you know, the signals are not normally going. So some people need a longer time to be in that state to get it to stick in the place where you wanted it to go, not where it wants to go where you want it to go. So there's other things we do to kind of help it along if um, if it's being stubborn and just wants to go back to where it was. Right, so it's just, yes, different people take slightly different ways and times to sort of readjust almost. We'll be right back. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind the scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. 
Combining their expertise and training, doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. Well, sure. Every Stelly Ganglion block, every treatment is customized. Um, you know, no two people are going to be alike. They're going to require different, um, different protocols. Yeah. Um, so I guess the other thing I was going to ask, are there any downsides to doing this? Is the worst that can happen is that it doesn't work? So complications really depend on the person driving the needle, right? The most common thing that I see um, and this is from other practices, is they'll do what's called an interscalene brachial plexus block. So remember those nerves I said that come out of the spinal cord uh, in the neck and they go into your shoulder and your arm? Well, they're, they're a little bit further back from where the stellar ganglion block sits. And if you don't recognize the landmarks, you put the medication a little further back and when the local anesthetic goes around these nerves, your arm goes numb and you can't move it for a couple hours. So this is something we do for a block, let's say if we're doing um, shoulder surgery or something on your upper arm or, or even the forearm. You know, if we want to do surgery on it and make it numb and not being able to move, this is the block you would do to do that. But it doesn't help with the stelaganglin at all. Not even a little bit because the medication is placed in the wrong location. If you put it into an artery, um, you get a seizure immediately because both the carotid and the vertebral artery go to the brain. So the second you put in as little as one milliliter, you're going to get a seizure and it's not going to be a good day for you or the patient. You could potentially get into the esophagus or the thyroid gland and you can numb up other nerves uh, that you don't want to. Uh, those are kind of the main complications. Other ones, you know, would be like a hematoma, which is a collection of blood. If you penetrated, let's say, a vein or an artery and you didn't inject, but um, you pull the needle out and leaks out into the area, you're going to get a little goober, you know, size of a walnut or a size of an orange. You don't know, of blood. It's not going to be comfortable um, as long as a person is not on blood thinners. It's most likely not dangerous. It'll resolve, but they just have a sore neck for a couple of weeks, like any bruise. Um, infection, bleeding, and uh, nerve injury are common to any invasive procedure you do, including something like getting a shot of the flu, okay, or a B12 shot. These all um, are risks. They're very rare, but yeah, they're there. As far as uh, side effects, um, like I said, it makes people very tired. Uh, especially if you have brain fog or fatigue. Otherwise, it doesn't. So if you have it already, it can make it worse for a couple of days, sometimes a couple of hours, uh, sometimes a couple of days. Now, I have been uh, very cautious in people with POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. You, you're familiar with this. So a lot of symptoms cross with long COVID, like uh, with chronic fatigue syndrome, right? A lot of things cross with long COVID, um, if you have stable POTS, it's stable, but um, I liken it to seeing an acrobat stacking six chairs on a ladder 
and I'm balancing on the point. So yeah, the, the acrobat is stable, but you get my point here, right? It doesn't take much to knock them off or one way or the other. So on the surface, it looks like everything's good. But if you dig underneath, you notice that it's, you know, it's hanging on by a thread. So the stellar ganglion sometimes can destabilize this, similar to like, you know, pushing the acrobat one way or the other. And symptoms become worse for a little while. Um, I'm very cautious about um, doing these in people who have POTS in general, just because of that. I'm not talking about uh, COVID, long COVID caused POTS. I'm talking about people who have POTS and then develop long COVID on top of it. So, you know, I, I tell people ahead of time that this could potentially happen. Have I done people with POTS that had normal responses? Absolutely. And I don't have no idea who's going to have a kind of a decompensated POTS and who's not. So, I mean, you know, some people, when, when it does destabilize, I guess it would be, you know, increased tiredness, dizziness, things like that. Like basically making the POTS symptoms worse because we've destabilized the system that was balancing on the head of a pin. And there's no way to know ahead of time who's going to be at risk for that or not. But anybody with POTS, I tell them, you know, do you want to take this risk or not? Because um, I can't tell you. I can't tell you if it's going to happen or not. Most of the time it doesn't. But, you know, if you happen to be one of the unlucky ones, it, it will. You know, nothing is permanent. It's just going to be, um, you know, a month or two of until it readjusts itself. Um, but that's really it. I mean, it's a very safe block in experienced hands. I'm going to emphasize this in experienced hands. This is not a watch a YouTube video and do the block. This is not a go to a weekend course and do the block. Okay, um, this really is an advanced block. I worked very long and hard at perfecting the technique, modifying the protocol, changing things out to make it better and better and better each time, decrease the risks, improve the results. So it's like a result of many years of work. Um, this is not one of those, you know, see one, do one, teach one. You know, the old adage in medical school, you know, you see, we see it once, you do it while the doctor watches you, and then you teach somebody else how to do it. Not this one. Not this one. Um, so, like I said, because of all the important structures there, you, you can really get into trouble if you don't recognize you're in a part you shouldn't be in. Uh, so, you know, luckily, we have never seen any complications or anything, um, never had a seizure or anything like that. And I've done roughly 1,800 uh, stellar blocks in my career so far well that's good to know that you know with someone who knows what they're doing it's safe and it's quite likely to be successful yes and i always ask people you know people come to me and or the i have a facebook group you know where we where i do a, a treatment group but basically um you know they'll, they'll say i had a bad block you know, i had a block didn't work my first question is is did you get a horner's did you get the droopy eye? Did you get the red eye? Did you get the small pupil? Did you get a stuffy nostril? Well, no. Well, what did you get? Well, my shoulder was numb. My, you know, my neck was numb. Okay, well, you didn't have a stellar ganglion block. You had local put into your neck. Congratulations. I mean, I'm glad you weren't hurt, but you didn't have a stellar ganglion block. So you don't know if it would have worked because you didn't really have it. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you didn't have it, but you didn't. <laughs> You know, so uh, how could you know if it worked or not since you didn't have it? 
So that's the number one reason for stellar gangland blocks to fail. If you look on Reddit, you look on uh, you look at the global Facebook support group for long COVID, parosmia, anosmia, the success rate is around 20 to 30% because they're including all these ones that weren't done properly. So, I mean, yeah, you had your neck injected, you know, great, but you didn't have a stellar ganglion block. I mean, it, it's kind of like in my pain practice, you know, I had a neck injection. Okay, which one? I do 10. Well, I don't know. They use the steroid. Okay, which one? I do 10. You know, it's like just because you had it done in your neck doesn't mean you had, you know, you know that you had a good block and the block that you intended to do. So it's very precise. Yeah. And we're talking about a millimeter or two can make a huge difference. Right. So, yeah, it does need to be done properly. Otherwise, it's definitely not going to work. It's not just the needle position, but when you're injecting, you need to see where the medication is spreading. If you don't like where the medication is spreading, you stop and you readjust the needle. You don't just keep injecting and hope it's going to correct itself because it doesn't. I make it look easy, but it's not. It really isn't. You know, some people who are watching me, they're like, oh, this looks like, you know, this looks like a piece of cake. Yeah, like um, like a skater doing, a, you know, a quadruple axel. It, you know, it looks, looks easy, but there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to do that. No matter how easy I think it looks. So, yeah, I mean... I'm very good at this block. Um, you know, we have very good results because of that. And no, no complications. You know, thank God I've got a knock on my my table here. Um, but yeah, that's essentially kind of, you know, the, the stellar ganglion in the, in the basket. Yes, look, a lot of people get nervous. You know, oh my God, I'm going to get an injection in my neck. It's scary. You know, it's right next to my face. It really is tolerated well. I've done it as young as 10 years old and an awake person tolerated very well. We talk to people, we hold their hands. Um, it doesn't really hurt that much because uh, it's numbed up. Like I said, it's very easy to tolerate. Um, I don't think I've had really anybody who's that stop, you know, it's too uncomfortable. I can't do it. Oh, that's really good to know. Um, Cause as soon as you start talking about needles, it, it feels a little bit, Ooh, but. Um... But I'm going to tell you something though. Um, a lot of times sedation requirements are a reflection of the doctor more than the patient. Some doctors don't want the patient awake while they're doing the procedure. And it may be a confidence thing, I don't know. But um, I, I do know some that will not do any injections on an awake patient, but it's not needed is my point. It's really not all that uncomfortable and um, it's tolerated very well. Cool, well, that's really great to know. So I mean, one question I would, you know, and this comes up, both from patients and doctors. So most of the time when you do a block, you know, I do an interscaling block, let's say, because it's very similar to numb up a shoulder and arm. And when the block wears off, everything comes back, right? The sensation and the movement comes back and it's very predictable. If the local anesthetic is supposed to last for four hours, you know, when the block wears off in four hours, everything comes back. Something's different about doing a sympathetic block or a stellar ganglion block. Um, the effects outlast the block length. So this is very different than oral medications, you know, similar to Tylenol and Advil or these blocks where once it's out of your system, it's out of your system. You're not going to get more pain relief, you know, a week later because you took a pill, um, you know, on Monday, on Friday, it's not going to still be effective, right? Um, something happens here that's different. And there's modification of the pathways. 
Okay. Like I said, in some people, it still snaps back. But how do you explain it lasting a week after the injection, uh, a month after the injection, uh, two years after inje the injection? Something changes there that's more permanent. It resets the system in such a way that for most people anyway, it doesn't want to go back to the old way, despite the block being gone. The foreigners is gone. Everything is gone. Uh, there's one of the medicine that does this, ketamine. It does something that lasts way beyond the effect of the drug. Once it's out of your system, uh, the effectiveness still lasts. So, you know, trying to explain to somebody who is used to basically doing normal blocks or, you know, normal medicines, how something can outlast the effect of the drug or the, or the effect of the block is, is sometimes difficult. Um, we don't know 100% what changes to make it basically uh, outlast, but we do know something does. There is a mechanism that changes. Um, it's either in the immune system with the inflammatory process or in the autonomic nervous system that it flips a switch and that switch does not want to go back even after it's done. But it's very, very different for this for this compared to any other block you do. One other thing I, I want to address is um, the spontaneous healing. Okay, I, I, I'm sure you've heard stories about this. So you, you've been two years out or sometimes 17 or 18 months out and everything sort of returns back to normal, maybe not 100%, but 95%, 98%. Um, they're good for about a month or two or maybe six months. And then something happens. Uh, either they get uh, another respiratory infection or they have surgery or they get COVID again. And then what happens a lot of times? Everything comes back the same as it was the first time. So my question is, is did you heal? Did you heal when you say you recovered at the two years? Um, did you heal? Are you healed? Or is something else going on? Is it a compensatory mechanism kind of fooling your body into thinking you're repaired, but you're not? And then it doesn't take much of something to kind of set it back to where it was. So this is kind of one of my hypotheses is that because the vagus tone and the parasympathetic tone is low after you've had COVID, you don't heal well. Healing is very delayed. It's very slow. It's almost non-existent. Similar to why sleep is problematic. You know, deep sleep is when your parasympathetic is the boss. You know, it kind of takes over the reins. And uh, when you're in deep sleep, and that's when the majority of the healing happens. And, you know, you spend about a third of your night in deep sleep normally. But I bet if we tested long COVID patients, which we haven't done yet, I bet you that their deep sleep percentage will be much lower. They sleep, but they don't sleep. So I think, though, because you're slowing down the repair process significantly, that um, your body can make compensations. Your system doesn't fully heal. And therefore, it's very sensitive to an unstable and fragile, kind of like that uh, acrobat on, on the ladder and the four, you know six chairs on top of the ladder. Um, it's balanced, but it's not, it's not stable. So um, we got to get these people to heal which is where improving the parasympathetic is important and hopefully have some resistance to further insults later on, whether it's a cold or 
having sinus surgery or something like that. You know, all I want to do is really share kind of what I know. And, you know, hopefully if I help at least one person, I've done my job. And, you know, just basically saying that, you know, there's somebody who wants to listen and um, this is real. You know, long COVID is real, no matter what anybody says, you know, no matter what your doctor says or it's real. You're not crazy. Okay. You're not crazy. It's it's not in your head. It's actually happening. So there's at least one doctor that believes you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been absolutely fascinating. I feel like my brain's about to explode in a good way. Um, so thank you so much for giving up your time and, uh, and thanks for all that you're doing. You're welcome. Thank you so much to all of my guests and to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it or at least found it useful. The Long COVID podcast is entirely self-produced and self-funded. I'm doing all of this myself. If you're able to, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash longcovidpod to help me cover the costs of hosting the podcast. Please look out for the next episode of the Long COVID podcast. It's available on all the usual podcast hosting things. And do get in touch 